Hurting Her Story is proudly sponsored by the Florida Cattlemen's Foundation. The Florida Cattlemen's Foundation is dedicated to sustaining a viable ranching industry in Florida through the development of future leaders. The Foundation Board is committed to raising and distributing funds for a wide variety of projects in the areas of research in the cattle industry, educational programs, leadership development programs, and the heritage and historical projects such as the ranching exhibit housed at the Florida State Fair and their signature event of the Florida Ranch Rodeo State Finals and Heritage Festival. Hurting Her Story is also proudly sponsored by Dale and Beth Carlton and family. We thank them for their support and commitment to a sustainable Florida by investing in the future generation. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Hurting Her Story podcast. This is Mary Margaret. And my name is Gina. And this is our third episode. Yeah. Um, Thanks for tuning back in with us. So again, we wanted to reiterate that we would take a deeper dive into our stories because we are asking our guests to really open up about themselves and their experiences. And it would only be fair if we started by being vulnerable, open, and honest with our stories first. Last episode, we did my story, and this week we're going to hear from Gina Tran herself. So, Gina, tell us about your family. First off, I don't think very many of us know much about them or or really anything. Yeah, so um, my family is not involved in agriculture in any way, and as far as my family history goes, we don't know too much about our family history just because, like we mentioned in our previous episodes, they didn't have a whole bunch of written records, even up until my dad was born. It was just because they didn't have the means to, they don't, a lot of them didn't really know how to read or write. And then a lot of them were just poor. So they didn't have like picture records or anything like that, that we could look back to. So for me, my family's history really starts with my grandparents. And even then, I don't know too much about them, just heard stories um, here and there about them. But we can start with my mom's story. Grew up in Hue, Vietnam. So I'll just kind of start with their journey here. Mm -hmm. My mom grew up in the city. She had six other siblings. When the Vietnam War broke out, my grandpa had was working for the government. And he kind of knew something was going on and that, you know, it was time to get out. Mm -hmm. So he sent my mom and some of her siblings to a smaller town away from the city, close to the coast. And they had to make a journey there. And it wasn't like you just hop on a boat and leave as a refugee. It was like you had to plan it out. You had to give people money so they weren't guarding the ports and whatnot. They just like happened to have to be gone because they got paid for it. Interesting. Yeah. So that's how people were able to all go in a group and hop on a small, I mean like small wooden boat to go ahead and leave Vietnam. My mom said that her and her siblings left and, you know, they had stayed the night at a relative's house in that small village. And when they went out to actually get on the boat they just like heard a bunch of gunshots everywhere and so they just like ran for it and they got on this boat and a lot of them were relatives and there were some random people they basically all paid to be there but like 
it wasn't their boat. Mm-hmm. Like, they were just the city folk that happened to come there. So they had crappy seats in the back where it was, like, super crammed. Mm-hmm. And again, these are really small wooden boats. They're made for just going up and down the river not to go to sea. They had a small little engine in the back, and that happened to be where my mom and her sisters and whatnot sat. How old was she at this time? She was just barely a teenager, like okay. probably 12, 13, 14. Okay. Not even maybe, probably like 9 or 10, because she was 14 when she actually got to the States. Okay. They set off. My grandma actually packed them some food, some rice and whatnot, but, I mean, they just set off in a direction. They had no idea where they were going, and so eventually they ran out of food, and they were just hungry and starving, and they were lucky that um, kind of off the coast of China, they washed up on like a sandbank, and were able to make it to land, and I guess there were a couple villagers there that, like, gave them some food, gave them some water, and um, the next morning, they held them at gunpoint, took all their wedding rings and, like, whatever valuables they had left from home. The people who had just given them food and water? Yes. Like, wow. the next morning, they were like, give us all you got, and then we'll let you leave. So then they got back on the boat, and they set sail again, and, you know, faced some pretty awful storms and they finally got to somewhere off the coast of Hong Kong and it happened to be where they were actually taking refugees Mm -hmm. but I mean a bunch of people were there already so my mom said they gave each boat essentially like a ticket number so they were like waiting on the shore until their ticket number was called and it was days days before their ticket number was called so when they finally called their number you know they docked their boat got in they checked them in told me they essentially just gave them barely a sheet as like a blanket and that's what they had anyway the refugee camp used to be a prison so they were living in a prison Mm -hmm. she told stories about how they just kept them in this one room for like a day or two and they just, it was just like black, weird, murky water up their shins. What? And they just, they just sat there a day or two as like a holding place. And how it was disgusting and they like kind of hovered over it and were cramped for days in there. And then they finally gave them bunk beds. You can imagine how small a bunk bed is. And they had to share it with two other people. So there were mm. like three people on each level of these bunk beds. Oh my god. And so that's where they stayed, and they lived at that refugee camp for four years. Some of the refugee camps, she said, would let people go out in the streets of Hong Kong and go to work and stuff. But the one they ended up at didn't let them work, but they would let them go, like, sign into the city. You just kind of had to, like, check in and check out, basically. Mm -hmm. So you had to come back every time. They served them food, but it was mostly, like, super cheap food, like ramen. She said she remembered eating a lot of ramen up to the point where, like, her feet blistered. Mm. Because it was, like, just so bad for her body because that's all she ate. Yeah. And she said that her and her sister have scar, like huge scars on the bottom of their feet from those blisters. But so they heard from like going out into the city and meeting other Vietnamese people that you could work assembly lines. So they would sneak out on these chain link fences. There was like a small little opening Mm -hmm. and they would just wait, make sure the guards weren't watching and they'd have their littlest sibling, my aunt, watch out for them. If they did inspections for whatever reason, she could check out, go grab them, check back in. They'd all be there. So my mom, like, a couple times, 
when she snuck out of this chain link fence, it like scraped the whole bottom of her back because she was trying to get out so quick. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that they would stay out weeks at a time to work. And when they did that, they either bunked with other refugees at some of the other refugee camps or they would just sleep on the beach. It was cold on the beach. So she told stories about how like her sister and her sister's husband would sleep next to each other to keep warm. And my mom would sleep at their feet to get the warmth of their feet while they were on the beach because there was nowhere else for them to stay. But yeah, so after four years of living there and working and just waiting, they finally got sponsored to go to America because we had an uncle or something who lived out here, or they had an uncle who lived out here. Yeah, they ended up in Colorado. Hearing that story, to me, it's just, I think, wow. I mean, it's just astonishing to me to think about that they chose and fled from a place to go to it was Hong Kong to be in what you described for four years what I can't even imagine living in yeah that type of environment but they fled from somewhere else to go to that so that's just yeah and like they had no idea where they would end up right set for a direction Vietnamese people love to party and they love to karaoke and drink beer and all that and that's where you yeah So, but at the end of, like, 40s, it kind of simmers down to a point where everyone's half drunk and they start talking about these stories. And that's kind of how I've, like, heard all of them, but not pieced all of them together. And, you know, a lot of people weren't as lucky as my family, as treacherous as that journey seemed. A lot of them weren't as lucky because, like, some people witnessed people landing on the shore they were like, we don't want any more refugees, shot those people down. What? Yeah, just absolutely shot them down. Or, like, they would land somewhere and they would pretend to be all nice or whatever. It's a foreign country. They mm-hmm. never knew where they were going to land. Mm-hmm. And they would take the women and leave the men. And they would either like shoot the men or, like, they let them leave or they'd sink them or something. But they would take wow. the women and, like, traffic them. Yeah. So, you know, it's, there's so much uncertainty and it's a miracle that my family made it like they did. Yeah. My mom's oldest brother wasn't as lucky because he went on a separate trip than her and some of her siblings. Mm -hmm. He apparently, his boat like flipped in the middle of the ocean, Mm -hmm. evidently. And he had to swim from wherever the heck he was to shore. No idea what direction to go. No idea what direction to go. So, so did all of the family end up? Like, all, you have, she had six siblings, right? Yes. Is that what you said? So did everyone end up in America or? Yes. So eventually? all of them ended up in Denver eventually. Most of them, when they got to Denver, they all lived in a really small apartment. It was like a two-bedroom apartment and there was five of them. Mm-hmm. And they decide, the elders, I guess, decided, because my mom was one of the younger siblings, the elders decided that, you know, half of them, the older ones, would go and work. And provide for the family. And then the younger ones would go to school and get the opportunity to get a degree and all that. My mom went to school with her sister, her youngest sister. And, you know, they went from a super tropical country, like not counting Hong Kong, to a very cold state with snow. Colorado, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like they've never seen snow. And there are stories about how, you know, they would walk 
five miles in the snow with like just a t-shirt and jeans and like some sandals on four inches of snow it's funny you say that have you ever heard old timers from i don't I've always heard old timers my whole life when they're talking about back in the day, they say, yeah, we had to walk uphill both ways in the snow yeah. all year long to school. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's, <laughs> but quite literally. You're... <laughs> yes, they actually had to. And, you know, they would go get into school and they would immediately stick their hands under hot water. And if you've ever done that, it burns. Burns, yeah. And they would do that every morning because they didn't have another choice, really. My aunt, she was little back then she had enough of it one day and she just stood there and cried at the sink and cried and cried because it hurt so much and they were just so miserable nobody told them they could take a bus mm-hmm. and they didn't know any better to take a bus because they were afraid that they would miss their stop wherever it was and they didn't speak english to be able to figure it out mm-hmm. and there's a story about how she was standing there at the sink just like crying and crying 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 and a teacher was kind enough and figured out that, no, she was just cold because she didn't have snow boots or anything. And the teacher bought her a pair of snow boots um, so she wouldn't have to walk in the snow with sandals. It's small things like that that kind of get to me because, I mean, out of the kindness of someone's heart, yeah. you know, they finally had something warm to wear. And that one small act of that teacher to your aunt. Mm-hmm. I mean, that meant the world. And it's something that you probably, I mean, it's a big deal to you hearing you talk about it, mm-hmm. obviously. And that teacher was just another day to her. And it was just a small act for her, but such a profound meaning to your entire family. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. So what about your dad's story? So my dad had a little bit of a different story. He actually didn't get out of Vietnam till he was a lot older he was in his 20s I think kind of same thing he actually lived in the same city as my mom did in Vietnam but they didn't know each other from there and oh wow yeah that's crazy I know same thing you know you have to go to the countryside to like an ocean town and that's how like get on a boat and escape Mm -hmm. and he apparently tried 14 or 15 times before he could finally leave And it took him a total of three years to leave. Wow. Yeah. Talk about commitment. I I mean, He was lucky he didn't get caught. If you got caught trying to escape, they would put you in jail and like beat the crap out of you. Mm -hmm. And that actually happened to my grandparents on my mom's side. After they sent their kids, they finally were like, okay, like we're going to try to go Mm because they had made contact with us in America something about my grandmother got caught so many times that they just ended up jailing her outside and like people would come and visit her and she got beat so bad that she like walks with a limp Mm. and everything and evidently listen to this (laughs) you want to talk about a legend here (laughs) she apparently got shot one of these times where they were like chasing after Mm -hmm. her she just had no idea that she was shot that she was shot Just no idea. And the only reason why we found out was when she was finally here in America and settled down, what, 30, 40 years later, Mm -hmm. she started having really bad back pain. And we took her to the doctor and they took an x-ray and everything. And they came back and they were like, um, (laughs) do y'all know that she has a bullet lodged in her back? Yeah. And that's what's causing all this pain because it migrated. And we were like, (laughs) You what? 
She she was. And she had no idea. She had absolutely no idea. She was like, what do you mean I have a bullet lodged into my back? We're like, you don't remember getting shot at? Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. But anyways, my dad ended up on one of those small wooden boats too with 42 people in it. Mm. I mean, like, how'd that thing not sink? I don't know. I don't know how any of them didn't sink because they packed them to the brim. Um, wow. And, like, sometimes people didn't even sit. Like, they just stood the entire journey. So he actually wow. set in a different direction. And evidently, they got stopped by pirates off the coast of Thailand. Pirates are a real thing. Yeah. Yeah, I know. He told me that. I was like, a what? Like, he was trying to find the English word for it because he couldn't find the Vietnamese word for it. And he um, was like, oh, pirates. And I was like, a what? Actual pirates? And he was like, yeah, the people like on boats that take your stuff? Pirates. And I was like, oh. Wow. Okay. Living life out here like pirates. Pirates of the Caribbean. Caribbean. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> he got stopped by pirates and they took all their valuables, their wedding rings and all that good stuff. And then they let them go, thankfully, and they didn't try and kill them mm-hmm. or anything. So he ended up in a refugee camp in Malaysia. And I guess he, he stayed on Malaysia for a little bit. And then they sent him to an island. And he only lived there for like a year or two. And then when they finally got paperwork and stuff through for his sponsorship, they transferred him over to the Philippines to finally come to America. And he had a little bit of an easier journey just because his older siblings had already come over to America and they ended up in Houston. So he got sponsored over to Houston and he had lived in Houston for a couple months. And then he decided to go to Minnesota because his cousin was out there. And he was like, you know, I'm going to live my own life with my cousin and Mm -hmm. we're going to just split bills and go to school and all Mm -hmm. that good stuff. So... That's where my dad ended up. Wow. Both of your parents went through a lot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just, I know my eyes are open. I know so many other people's eyes are probably going to be open listening to it. But mm-hmm. I think we take so much freedom for granted. For granted. Yeah. We really do. For sure. What was it, I mean, what was it like growing up with immigrant parents? It, it was pretty hard. I, again, sometimes you always think these experiences are just your own, and I didn't realize even my cousins who were older than me, they're like 20 years older than me, mm-hmm. went through the exact same thing. And, you know, you always, it was hard because you always didn't feel like you were a good enough Vietnamese kid, and then you also didn't feel American enough at the same time. Mm-hmm. Growing up in that dynamic was really hard because you always had to kind of find a balance of, you know, I want to be a kid in America, like go hang out with my friends, like go for ice cream, whatever. At the same time, there's a pressure of, you know, your parents went through all of this stuff on this journey, sacrificed so much, worked their butts off to get to where they are today from literally just eating food out of a dumpster to like having a home. Yeah. There's a guilt that you always feel of having to just always be focused on school and doing everything you can to be a good kid and, you know, getting into your teenage years, not remembering that you can't always just be rebellious, you know, be a teenager in the back of your mind. You're like, okay, I can't do that. Look what they went through. Look what they survived. Why am I going to be a little bratty kid, cry over some spilled milk? 
Yeah, you had that weight on your shoulders. Yeah. Too. Yeah. A lot of other kids didn't understand that. They didn't understand why my parents wouldn't let me go and hang out with them at the mall or whatever, or go and buy new shoes, even though mine were like ratty. Mm-hmm. They grew up super poor, and if, if you don't need Didn't have shoes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If they're still working, you don't need another pair. You right. You might have the money for it, but like, you don't need it. Right, yeah. And then just like small little funny things of... They always packed food wherever they go. We never ate out, ever. <laughs> when we would go to Disney, my mom would pack an entire cooler full of food and bring it with us when we went to the beach and everything. We never just stopped and grabbed food at McDonald's or like went to a gas station to grab a snack. It was always, oh, there's food in the car. Right. I brought food with us. Yeah. Having a, that generational trauma of understanding what your family went through even though they weren't your own experiences it almost feels like you lived them yourself because you heard those stories so many times you heard about you know every time you did something wrong they'd be like we didn't go through all of this so you could do x y and z Mm -hmm. so it was always just floating in the back of your mind and kind of always lived in a little bit of guilt of feeling you know you didn't deserve this life they went through so much and here you are just Growing up, being a kid, and not understanding, like, all the crap they went through. But at the same time, my whole entire family also made sure, like, we knew what we had. Right. Which is a valuable... Yeah. Yeah. They Like, they grew up super poor. Especially my grandpa, he grew up in a very, very poor agricultural community. He was always like, don't ever waste food. You know, you never know what kid could have had your life, could have had the meal before you small stuff when people are like you know don't waste food there are starving children in Africa and someone fires back name one Mm -hmm. I absolutely hate that Mm -hmm. because I grew up understanding that you're lucky to have food on the table it doesn't matter if you know the starving kid next door they could have your plate of food so you better appreciate what's in front of you and I remember my mom showing me a video of one day really let it sink in with us There was a guy who went to a McDonald's in Vietnam and he just picked up scrap bones with very little tiny pieces of meat that people had left on it that they hadn't eaten off of the bone. Yeah. Picked up buckets full of that from the dumpster and he took it to a small little village in Vietnam and there were these kids. I mean, they were just sticking bones everywhere. They didn't have clothes or anything on them. And I mean, they were just... As happy as can be to see this man bring them somebody else's scrap food. Scrap bones. Yeah. That's what That's what I grew up knowing. Mm -hmm. So, always remember being thankful for what you have. How did, I mean, how did your family feel about you being involved in ag? So, they don't really. Because they don't, they didn't come from ag. No. So, my mom is very much a city girl. (laughs) (laughs) And so is my dad, but I think. Back in Vietnam, even though he grew up in the city, his family still had fruit trees and stuff in the yard. So he was a little bit more connected to it than my mom was. She grew up smack dab in the middle of the city, and that's all she's ever known. They didn't, they don't quite understand it. To them, it's our ancestors worked hard to not have to live in agricultural villages anymore. In Vietnam, it's very much a social economic indicator of your class right so they're like we didn't 
leave those agricultural villages for you to come and farm or in the states. Yeah. yeah, this is the American dream. You can do anything, and you're in ag. What? <laughs> yeah, my family's always had an expectation for me to go and be a doctor like every other Asian parent. <laughs> it like it's a stereotype. It, it's, that it is, is true. <laughs> and you know, I did well in school, so they were like, "Oh my gosh, this is it." Because none of my cousins are. Well, two of my cousins are chiropractors, but for whatever reason, they don't consider them doctors. But, oh my gosh. Do you understand wow, actually the value of being a chiropractor? <laughs> Finally, a kid that does well in school, she can like go be a doctor or whatever. And, you know. Gina is very smart. Very, very smart. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Some days it's questionable. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think a lot of people, people are like, you know, Asians all want to be doctors, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think people understand the mentality behind it in Asian families and it's they view the merit of a family based off of how many doctors or medical personnel they have in that family your success as a family is based on how many doctors you have it's it's so it sounds really bad saying out loud but like it's really how they view it some people say oh it is a stereotype, like we mentioned, then don't really talk about it being a stereotype. It very much what you're saying is the value and the merit of a family is based on that. Yes. It's kind of an unspoken thing. And I hate it so much. That's all they judge your family by. And it's all by like looks. It's not by the family dynamic. You know, how is this kid succeeding in his own shape, way, or form? And it's within the family. We're not talking about outside the family. Both. We're, talk we're both. talking about both. Okay. Yeah, both. When I decided I didn't want to be a doctor and stuff anymore, everyone was like, oh my gosh, the world is going to end right now. Because mm -hmm. I was like their last hope or whatever. <laughs> so they don't quite understand it, but I think they're coming to terms with it because they see how much of a passion I have for it. I got involved in ag through FFA in high school. Mm -hmm. Took a vet assisting class because I loved animals. And my... FFA advisor was my teacher at the time and he was like oh there's this thing with FFA you know we do all this cool stuff you can miss school for doing all these things and I was you're like, like sign me literally. up I was like sign me up I don't want to <laughs> be here and from there you know I got more involved and that's how back then I didn't talk to anyone you thought I was a weird awkward kid now back then I was a weird <laughs> awkward <laughs> odd kid that did not talk to anyone at all <laughs> and my ffa advisors were the ones that broke me out of my shell because they forced me to do leadership competitions and whatever and talk right. in front of people and that kind of got me out of my shell finally and i'm so thankful for them for doing that well they did a very phenomenal job well thank you <laughs> when did you decide you wanted to be involved not just in ag, but really the cattle industry. My junior and senior year of high school, I got the opportunity to show in the Usirpagirdi at the Florida State Fair. My junior year, I hadn't planned on showing a steer for a bunch of reasons, but a chapter steer kind of just got dumped on me, essentially. I mean, I had like a month left to prepare the steer for the fair. And I showed that steer and I was like, this is freaking awesome. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to do this again. So the next year, I purchased my own steer and raised it <laughs> and everything. Kind of a, a story that goes along with that. It it makes me emotional every time I tell it. But so there's a... Here we go. This is a story about <laughs> how I knew I could make it in the 
agricultural industry mm-hmm. in, in the cattle industry specifically. If you're not familiar with the Youth Steer for Charity program at the Florida State Fair, they get a bunch of steers from commercial producers all over from all over the state. Mm-hmm. And those are the steers that they sell to the kids. So it's kind of a way to showcase the commercial industry in Florida and get students to understand what it's like raising a commercial animal versus a show animal. And they sell them at market price and everything. Mm-hmm. And they get premiums on top of that. I got to meet a lot of these commercial producers through showing at the state fair. So my that chapter steer my junior year was actually raised by Mr. Doyle E. Carlton mm-hmm. um, down there in Hardy County. And I had no idea who he was. I just knew he was my steer producer. Right. So I was helping set up panels in our holding arena with my FFA advisor because he was on the steer committee. And I'm just toting these panels or whatever. And all of a sudden he stops me and he's like, hey. And I'm like, hello. (laughs) And he was like, you see that man over there? I'm like, sure. And there's a man standing by my steer. He was like, that man's grandfather, great grandfather helped start the state fair. He's a super important guy and he's your steer producer. You need to go and introduce yourself to him. Who's telling you this? My FFA advisor. Okay. And I'm standing there like sweaty, a mess. And I'm like, what do you mean I have to go meet this guy? And he's like, go, like freaking go before he leaves. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Chop, chop. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm like nervously walking over there and I'm shaking and like quaking. Okay. This is like a super important guy. What what do I say to him? Like, what do I do? So I walk up to him and he's looking at my steer and he's looking at my poster or whatever. Mm-hmm. On top. And I'm just kind of awkwardly standing by him, waiting for him to notice me. Because I'm still like, what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> I've never done this before. And he finishes reading the sign and he looks over at me and I'm frozenly petrified. <laughs> and he's like, is this your steer? Uh, y- y- yes, sir. And he's like, tell me your name, young lady, and I will remember it forever. So I tell him my name and I, and you know, he's just talking about how I did a good job with the steer and it's nice to meet me. And I'm like, okay, cool. And he walks away and I'm like, there's no way this man's going to remember my name. Mr. Doyle E. Carlton III. He has no business remembering my name. Some random girl from Orlando who happened to show one of his steers. He donates steers every year. Well, the next year when I got my own personal steer, walking around the sale barn and I see him, oh my gosh, it's Mr. Carlton. You know what? I'm just, I'm just going to keep walking. He probably doesn't even remember me, blah, 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 whatever. So I'm walking by him. He's talking to some people and we finally start crossing paths. And he reaches out and he grabs my hand and he's like, hi, Miss Gina, how are you doing? And I almost cried right then and there. That was such a huge moment for me where I was, you know, maybe I can make it in this industry. If a man like Mr. Carlton can remember my name, (laughs) just some random girl from Orlando, maybe I have a fighting chance. And I'm so thankful that someone like him remembered my name because it really showed me that these people care 
It goes to show how big of an impact our industry leaders can make on young people with something as small as learning someone's name. <laughs> Even if you're just passing by them. But like you never know where they're gonna show up again. And taking the time to learn someone's name and getting to know someone who wants to get involved in the industry, who is learning the ropes of it, really makes a world of a difference to someone. And I can say that firsthand from that experience. I think there's a shift in a mindset of understanding that we need more young people in the industry with different backgrounds and people who can bring new things to the table. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, we've emphasized in the past, part of sustainability is being able to keep the people who have a passion for the industry involved in the industry. Yeah. Someone once said to me, you know, I really love the kids who don't come from agricultural backgrounds. Not that I don't love the ones who come from agricultural backgrounds. It's a different dynamic because you can see that these kids want it more because they found a passion for it. It wasn't like it was instilled in them. It wasn't like they're living up to expectations. It wasn't like it's out of obligation or like a sense of duty. It's something Because they're that, a sixth, seventh generation rancher or farmer. Yeah, yeah and that's different. That tradition and that heritage is so special. Recognizing that not only that, but people who have found their own passion for it is also a special thing in its own. Absolutely. Yeah. What was it like? I mean, <clears throat> you found your passion yeah. in, the, in the cattle, in the ag industry. What were some, do you want to talk about some of the challenges that you faced? So I think first and foremost is just not knowing where to start. Yeah. I knew out of high school that I wanted to have a more solid foundational knowledge of the industry and that's kind of why I decided to major in animal sciences at UF but then from there I was like, okay like where do I get experience like what do I do from here and luckily a lot of people pointed me in the directions of joining the block and bridal club and gator collegiate cattle women's and that kind of was a good segue into getting involved in not only the Florida Cattle Women's Association and the Florida Cattlemen's Association but also getting to see different sides of the industries. And that's kind of where I've learned that it's really about who you know and not what you know again. You can know anything and everything, but it, you can't make those connections unless you know someone. And that's kind of what I've come to realize because I would show up to quarterly meetings and ranch tours and whatnot just trying to get my foot in the door. Instead, mm -hmm. like, I'm a very quiet person when you first meet me, so I was just showing up, showing up, showing up, showing up. I don't really feel like anything's happening with mm. me showing up. And it wasn't until I was finally engaging in people where I was okay, like, I wanted to be part of this in the first place is because of the community of people who are willing to help you out and get to know you and make you part of the family. But it took a while to get that, is what you're saying. Yes, yeah. and I think... I think it's a lot better now. Standing where I'm at right now, I think people are a lot more open to welcoming new people. Mm -hmm. But I felt like at the time where I was trying to get involved and doing all these things with the different associations, I felt they just didn't know what to do because it was not meant me new people to come in. Okay, like, what do I do next? Which is true. There's not a lot of new faces that, that people don't know oh you're from this family and this family in the industry yeah right? and I think there's a component of it of 
I'm not saying this to play the color card or whatever, but, you know, these people are used to seeing people who look like them coming from small rural towns. And so when this small little Asian girl just like shows up in a room full of (laughs) ranchers, they're like, uh, are you lost? (laughs) Getting past that was also a hurdle for me because, you know, everywhere I went, it was, I get stares from everywhere. Okay, like if I saw a tiger and a pen full of lions, I would also be like, (laughs) what is happening here? It wasn't in a negative way. It was just a a little, are you lost? Yes. Yeah. And like, sometimes it was negative. You always get that everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. It's not like an exclusive thing, but just shifting my mindset to being like, okay, they're not staring at you because you don't belong here, but they're staring at you because it's new for them too. Mm-hmm. Right. Was something that I struggled with immensely. And then it was about looking for hands-on experience. And that was such a hard thing for me because I was looking on different websites, reaching out to different people, trying to find an internship, find someone who was willing to take a chance on me, who I had no experience whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But I was like, listen. I'm willing to work hard. I really, really just want to learn. I'm in it for the end game. Where do I start? Mm -hmm. And it was just a lot of people had a hard time with that because obviously they want someone with a little bit more experience. So it's not a liability issue. But at the same time, they had no idea who I was. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't, they didn't know my work ethic or anything like that. So it's hard for them to give a chance. Luckily, I met Mr. Gene Lawless while he was still president of FCA. And oh my goodness, looking back, like I wouldn't have given myself the internship because I was a wreck (laughs) asking him for this internship because I was so nervous and I wanted it so badly. And he was kind enough to be like, yeah, we can make something work. Yeah. And I just, I'm so thankful that he was, he took a chance on me because that's, really how I got started and that's why I am where I am today. Without him taking a chance on me, I think I would have just given up at some point and been like, it's not for me. Yeah. Was there ever a point where you didn't want to be an ag anymore? I think again, talking about getting in the mindset of I'm here. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get a foot in the door and a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. I think after you sit there with that mindset for so long and you're constantly trying to fight to find a seat at the table, you know, looking anywhere and everywhere and reaching out so many times to find an opportunity, you get really tired. A lot of the fight gets taken out of you. Mm -hmm. And there was a time where I sat there and I was, you know, like, I love it so much. I love this community. I love getting to work with cattle. Like, love getting to see you know the sunrises and the sunsets from a horse and everything but I sat there and I was like it's so hard sometimes to get a foot in the door that you just get tired of fighting and it's super discouraging and disheartening to admit that to yourself because when you look back and you look at how far you've gone, well, you should keep going. Like yeah. This is something you're legitimately passionate about. And a lot of people don't find that passion. Mm-hmm. I've talked to it with my friends from Orlando and stuff. And they're like, we don't understand what you do. 
but your eyes light up every time you talk about it. And that's something that's so special because one of my friends is in finances and he's like, I hate corporate America. And I'm like, (laughs) then do something else. And he's like, I don't like, I don't know where to find something that I'm passionate about. Like you're passionate about agriculture and the cattle industry. He's like, I don't think you understand that people don't just find something they're passionate about like that. Like, they find stuff that they like. They find stuff that they enjoy. And they do that outside of work. Yes, but they don't do it as their job. Like, they don't come to work and they're like, I get to do this every day. Yeah. They come to work and they're like, all right, like, let me just check the boxes. Yeah. It's hard for me to talk about how much of a struggle it felt like at times. And a lot of it was self-inflicted, I think. Reflecting back on it, I always thought it was circumstantial. A lot of it was self-inflicted of I was trying to get somewhere and I wasn't getting there as fast as I wanted to. And you probably sometimes it's hard to see your progress while you're in the middle of the journey. Yes. When you look back, you can see it. But when you're in the trenches, it's kind of hard to see behind you yeah at the end of the tunnel yeah and just like you said how far have you gone on your journey and it's hard for me to be open and vulnerable about this stuff because I always felt like I was complaining or I was playing certain cards and that people would think I was just asking for sympathy and pity Mm -hmm. and that's not the case it's just me sharing my experiences like and it was hard right And I hope it's not hard for other young people who are trying to get involved who come from similar backgrounds like me. That's what I'm here to do is to tell my story and hopefully it helps people along the way. And I'm really thankful for the community that I have and for all the people that I've met along the way. A lot of these people are people that I looked up to. To me, they're like celebrities. They're like the Kevin Costners and the Sam Elliott's and stuff, and, like, they're just your average rancher. I'd be careful telling some of these guys <laughs> they're your Sam Elliott or Kevin Costner. <laughs> I wouldn't say that to their face. No, 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 no. But that was the equivalent for me. <laughs> you know, they're just your average rancher, and to me, uh, they were just people that I wanted to be. Yeah. And now those same people or people I get to see at quarterlies when we have convention and stuff like that, and I get to catch up to them which is like just mind-blowing for me yeah you have a personal relationship with them yeah yeah little me back then would have never imagined that I would have the nerve to come to talk to these people much (laughs) less have a relationship with them yeah it even goes the same for people I was in FFA with there were state officers FFA members that I looked up to like they were just cool and like won all these contests and were so knowledgeable right some of those people are my best friends now and I'm like in their weddings which is that's really special yeah Yeah. it's it's it really shows just how far you can come let yourself get there and then turn back around and look at where you came from it gets really emotional looking back to see all the relationships I've built all the people that I've met and just the things I've gotten to do I mean people are always calling me like a wandering gypsy now because I'm just hopping from place to place working at different ranches. As we're recording this right now, Gina's whole car is packed, her whole life is packed into her car. Yes, I drive a little Toyota Camry right now and my entire car is filled to the brim. Like 
to the brim. Every crevice is filled with something. Well, the top box. of it is your resist all box. So yes. that <laughs> Yes. My the back in my trunk is my saddle, my slicker, my cooler, <laughs> my all my working boots and everything like that. Yeah. They're all stuffed back there. That's great. That's great. <laughs> well, as we wrap this up, I think we wanted to share both who are lady legend that we looked up to growing up. Mine would probably be Iris Wall out of Indian Town with High Horse Ranch. Uh, I grew up with her within the Florida Cracker Horse Association and watched her run that ranch. And I can remember sitting on her porch and singing Jean Autry songs and her telling stories of cow hunting and, and the Everglades. And I just thought it was just so cool and wanted to be like her one day. And yeah, uh, I would say she's a pretty big lady legend to me. What about you, Gina? Well, I mean, you're living the dream right now. You're like becoming <laughs> what you wanted to be. I, well, I, I work at a ranch, live and work at a ranch just probably 45 miles from her ranch mm-hmm. in South Florida now. So that's pretty special. Yeah. My lady legend so I didn't grow up in the industries. I can't say I had like an experience like you did. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm very appreciative of all the mentors I've had along the way, both cattle women and cattlemen, my FFA advisors, other FFA advisors and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd have to say my lady legend would have to be my mom. We don't always get along and we see life in like, two completely different ways Mm -hmm. and we're two completely different people but she has taught me to never give up because I've never seen her give up through everything that she's been through so she's who I look up to even though we're starkly different (laughs) um, and we don't always have the best relationship but she's taught me a lot of things and I wouldn't be who I am without her well, you're a pretty dang special person, so if you ask you. me. <laughs> she you. raised a pretty good one. Thank so. <laughs> we also wanted to share what each one of us look forward to the most about the future uh, with the Hurting Her Story podcast. I know for me, well, first off, we're in very different parts of our lives. Yes. Um, I am, I just turned 28. And Gina, how old are you? 23. You're 23. So I'm transitioning into the part of my life where I think about having a family and kids one day, and I want to hear from successful women how they accomplished having both and their advice on how they were having able. it all, how yeah. they were able to be successful both in the home and on the ranch. Yeah. And finding that balance. And And finding the balance. Mm -hmm. Because it's something that's coming up for me. (laughs) Yeah. Which is super exciting. (laughs) Um, I think for me, I'm still pretty young. And like I said, everyone calls me a little wandering gypsy. Mm -hmm. I think getting to hear from a lot of different people, from a lot of different backgrounds and what advice they just have in general... Um, is something I look forward to just because I don't have a whole lot of experience. So getting to hear 
all of the things that they've experienced, the success that they have found and the challenges they've had along the way will really, and like the path that they paved for all of us will keep me grounded and kind of keep me focused on where I want to be because, you know, getting to see all these lady legends and how far they've made it and the things that they've done, it gives me hope for, you know, my generation, for younger women to be like, okay, you know, they've paved the path for us. They've done all these incredible things back in the day where the expectation was just to raise kids and to be a homemaker. And now you you can have it all. Like you said, you can have that balance. And that's where both of our excitements for the future come together. Yes. Yeah. That and I think just also getting to hear from younger people and seeing how they found their own path along the way and how different but like amazing it can be in different ways so needless to say we're excited about the future and the possibilities and we have now shared both of our stories with all of Mm y'all we hope you enjoyed them yeah and, and we're going to start having guests. Yeah. I think some of these guests you're going to hear in the future are going to be unexpected. And then there are going to be some that you are like, oh, yeah, she should definitely be on the podcast. And then once they're on, you're going to be like, we have never heard something like that before. And yep. that's what's really special, I think, about this journey that we're on is getting to hear things that we would never get to hear in a normal setting from these lady legends. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll catch y'all in a couple weeks. With that. As always, be a lady lady legend. legend.